worked our way right through the book of John, chapter by chapter. Hopefully it's done you good, and uh, hopefully it has helped you to see and to increasingly believe Jesus. That's the purpose of the book. That's the purpose of the series. That's what we've been praying for, and hopefully it's been effective for you in that sense. We're in chapter 18 today. Uh, In a moment, we're going to read the whole chapter. It's a long chapter, but I want us to really read it because it's such a pivotal moment in the gospel. There's 40 verses, uh, but I really want us to kind of get into the story and see it in its breadth because now we are heading to the cross. This is the climax of the gospel. This is the climax of human history, frankly, as well. And uh, what we'll see in this chapter today is Jesus and the disciples who have left the Last Supper. We spent a few weeks talking about that. And they've left the city of Jerusalem and they've walked across the Kidron Valley outside the uh, Jerusalem city walls. And they've climbed the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, they're, they're entering into a walled garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, in this garden, Jesus will go and he'll pray to the Father, knowing that the next day he will face the cross. And uh, as he prays, a detachment of Roman soldiers and religious leaders, led by his friend Judas, come into the garden to arrest him. You've got to kind of try and uh, uh, picture the drama of this moment. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. So we're going to read the whole of chapter 18. Words will come up on the screen. And uh, it's quite a long story, but, uh, and it'll take a few minutes, but really try and follow along and kind of understand what's happening uh, so you can get into the whole drama of the story. I've asked the lovely Gemma to come and read this. So uh, Gemma, can you just come and read John 18 for us, please? Follow there. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. 
The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold. And the servants and officials stood round a fire, and they made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the, G- all the Jews come together. I, had, I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man who... Uh, whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a cock began to crow. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? I am a Jew, Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Thanks, Gemma. That's great. Thank you. It's going to be be a long night for Jesus. Just think about what is happening here. Jesus and his closest friends, the disciples, are in the Garden of Gethsemane and then One of his closest friends in the world, Judas, walks in with a detachment of soldiers. He walks up to Jesus. 
he kisses him on the cheek to signify to the soldiers that this is the one that you want to arrest. Betrays him, sells him out, hands him over. Dramatic, to say the least, and it's only just getting started. And Jesus, knowing full well what is about to happen, asks them a question that I believe is at the heart of the story and is actually one of the fundamental questions of the human heart. Verse 4, who is it you want? That's today's question. Whoever you are and whatever your background, you will be at some level searching for something in the world to give you meaning and significance and peace. Peace from the expectations of the world, peace from the inner anxieties and insecurities that we harbor in the darkness, peace from the events and the traumas of our life, peace from the brokenness in our souls, and peace from the brokenness of the world. We all do this. We do this in all sorts of ways. We fill up our lives with busyness, or we amass wealth, or we look for that one person in whom we can pour our hearts and who will understand and satisfy ours. These aren't all bad things, but they are also not, importantly, ultimate things, because they will only ever take you so far in satisfying the deepest need of the human soul to be loved and received and given significance and meaning in a truly satisfying, unending, unbreakable, unconditional way. And that can never be fully and perfectly done by another person or by anything that this world offers up. Because underneath all of the striving and desire is a search ultimately to be perfectly safe and to be perfectly saved. And therefore, it's a search for a savior. And so the question today is Jesus's question of the soldiers. Who is it that you want? This is, um, this is an incredible story of contrasts. On the one hand, we see the, the failure of, of men and the failures that accompany our own efforts to achieve safety and peace. What happens, if you like, when you try to save yourself? And on the other hand, we see Jesus and all that he is, powerful but gentle, mighty but self-sacrificing, direct but loving. And so I want us to look at some of these contrasts today in the story. I've got three contrasts, three comparisons, I believe highlight the faithfulness and the love and the victory of Christ and his ability to save and heal with the failures and the dangers of what happens when we trust in ourselves and try and do it our own way. Let's look at these. This is the first gospel contrast. Our reflex is to self-protect. His reflex is to protect us. Straight away, we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. The, the minute Peter thinks that they're under threat, out comes the sword. In fact, the whole chapter is about self-protection ultimately. Peter draws the sword, Judas sells out, the disciples run away, Peter denies Christ, the Jewish leaders put him on trial to protect themselves, Pilate has him sentenced to death to protect his own rule. Self-protection is just in us. We naturally think of number one first. It's our instinct to self-protect, even if that means throwing others under the bus at times. The human heart is, is deceitful, and human nature is fallen. It's been this way since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. 
We see this even now. You don't have to look very far in conflict zones around the world. Our natural inclination is not to protect our fellow man and to demonstrate love. It's, it's easier and more instinctive to protect ourselves, even when that means putting our enemies to death in the most unimaginable ways. That's, that's what's going to happen here in this story. That same story is being told right now in Gaza, in Ukraine, in South Sudan, in Mali, in Afghanistan. There's nearly 50 armed conflicts going on globally right now. Some of them have been going on for decades. There's only about 200 nations in the world. 50 armed conflicts. It's always been like that. It's always been the same story. It's the story of violence and of self-protection and of eliminating our foes. Even in the Garden of Eden, right at the start, God finds Adam out and Adam protects himself by blaming Eve. Throws her under the bus. He actually blames God. It's your fault. You gave her to me. These are the first recorded words of mankind to God. We're still in the opening chapter of the story of mankind and God, and this is happening. And within a gener generation, their, their offspring are at it. Cain kills his brother, Abel, out of jealousy, and then we're really off to the races. The whole story just unravels from there on out. Self-protection and self-promotion and self-gratification and self-glorification and violence is just in us. These things are just a function of the broken, searching human heart. It's a problem. We're looking for something, and we look for it within ourselves and in all the wrong places, and we need to be healed of this, and we need to be saved from ourselves. And so here in the garden, Peter draws the sword, and off comes the Roman soldier's ear, off comes Malchus's ear. Now, for full disclosure, I just want to let you know that I have spent far, far too much time this week thinking about how you chop off somebody's ear with a sword. That's a precision move. How do you do it? I can't get my head around. You've got to do it fast enough to surprise him, and yet slow enough to do it but not take off the kind of the part of the face or the shoulder. And the conclusions I've come to are one of two. Either Peter was a Jedi, or Malchus was in the Matrix, and it was like one of these and chopped off his ear. I can't, can't work it out. Anyway, I digress, and that gives you an insight into my week. Peter draws his sword out of um, self-protective instinct, this, the, the, and it's only a short while before he himself then flee from the garden, and just a little while before he denies Christ outright to protect himself. But look what's already happened. In verse 4, when the soldiers come asking for Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus replied, I am he. In verse 6, look what happens. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. An entire detachment of Roman soldiers see Jesus, recognize him for who he is, and they fall over. And straight after that in verse 8, probably while they're still on the ground or kind of trying to right themselves, Jesus points at the disciples and he says, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. Look, let, let's see what's going on here. Jesus speaks and the soldiers fall face down. God speaks, and we fall face down. This is a common response to a revelation of God in the Bible. Abraham, Joshua, Ezekiel, Daniel, Peter, James, Paul, John himself, when he sees a vision of Jesus in the book of Revelation, these men all saw God or heard his voice, 
and fell over with awe. And here we see it again. The words of Jesus, friends, fell the enemy and they protect his friends. Let these men go. That's what he says. He's, he's echoing Moses, really, the other great redeemer of God's people who said to, to Pharaoh, let my people go. That's what's in the heart of God. That's what the words of God do. That's what God does. He's not out to protect himself. He protects us. He fells our enemies and he sets us free. He is mighty to save and his words change things. They change our hearts. They change hearts. They change the hearts. And in this case, they change the legs of those who see him. That's why I, um, I always chuckle when I hear people say that when they get to heaven, they'll have some questions for Jesus. First thing I do when I get to heaven is ask Jesus, why all the wars? One person I heard said that when they get to heaven, they're going to ask Jesus why uh, some of the roadworks have been happening consistently near their house. Spoiler alert. That will not be the first thing you do when you come face to face with Jesus. The first thing you'll do when you come face to face with Jesus, with your glorified new bodies in heaven, will be to fall face down before him in awe and worship. That's what's going to happen one day when he returns anyway. Every single knee will buckle and we will all fall face down before him in awe and worship and praise. His words fell the enemy and he set his friends free. Our instinct is to self-protect. His instinct is to protect us. In um, parts of the Bible, various parts of the Old Testament, God calls us, his people, the apple of his eye. I apologize for the picture that's about to come up if it scares you. Uh, there we go, there's an eye. The apple of the eye is the pupil, the central part of the eye. If you're a medic, you'll, um, you'll know this. But the every reflex of the upper body is to protect the pupil of our eye. Our reflex is to self-protect. But we are the apple of his eye. His every reflex is to protect us. It's easily done, but um, you really do not need to let your hearts be troubled and to work hard and to search hard and to build up and amass the things that we think will save and protect us. He will do that for us, friends. Who are you looking for? There's only one who will protect you by reflex, fight your battles, fell your enemies, and set you free. It's Jesus. The story tells us this. You are safe when you're in Jesus. Second uh, gospel contrast I want to show you. We deny him. He is struck for us. This is a story of betrayal and denial and violence. Judas betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of Roman silver. Peter denies Jesus three times, and within a few moments of him being before the high priest, they're hitting Jesus in the face, and they're mocking him. We don't want to believe this, but this is in us too. We, we strike out and deny God all the time in every way that we oppose him or refuse him or think we know better or blame him for our misfortunes. When we blame God for the way the world is or how we think it should be, we are denying and we are striking out at God. It's exactly, again, what happened in Eden. It's the anatomy of sin. Pay attention to this, kind of the dynamics of this. They saw the fruit and they followed their eyes. They thought that they knew better. They, they denied God, and they struck out against God's rule. They walked by sight rather than by faith. 
And that has been the anatomy of sin ever since. That is always what is happening when we sin. We are walking by what we think will save and satisfy, what we see with our eyes, rather than what God says will satisfy and save. We deny God and we look for the answers and for salvation in the world and in our pursuits and in our um, achievements uh, and in our indulgence in forbidden fruit, and we look for it within ourselves. This is what we do. I've got all the answers. And let me tell you, we do not have all the answers within ourselves. We are not God. You and I are not gods. We do not have what it takes to save ourselves. We need someone to save us. I've used this example before, but um, a few months ago, I accidentally superglued my own jumper to my arm. I am not a god. I do not have all the answers. My own jumper stuck to my arm. I cannot save myself, and neither can you. One commentator said that um, when, when Peter was outside in the courtyard warming his hands around the enemy fire, saying, not me, I don't know him, Jesus was inside saving us from the enemy fire by declaring, I am. We need a savior who will cover our betrayal and our denial and face down our enemy. That's what Jesus was doing that night in front of the high priest as they struck him. We need a savior who is willing to be struck for us, who will take the force of the blow of my sin and who will ultimately be struck for me on the cross to take away my sin and shame and close the distance that I've opened up between me and God in my self-reliance and my rebellion and my opposition to his work in my life. When, uh, when Peter struck out with the sword in self-defense in the garden, what did Jesus say? Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Your violence will not save you, Peter. Nothing you do will. What will save you is that I am prepared to drink down and accept the full metaphorical cup of God's wrath against sin so that you don't have to, nor anyone who comes after you who chooses to say yes to me. Let's just, let's just think on this. I'm not sure we always do. We think about the physicality of the cross, the, the pain of the cross. When, when Jesus went to the cross, the execution that he faced would have been physically excruciating. That's obvious to, see, obvious to say. Literally, that's what the word excruciate means. It's Latin for of the cross, excrucia. But that wouldn't have been the worst part of it, unbelievable as that is to say. The worst of it was that he himself received all the wrath and the punishment that God has against the sin of mankind. Because it's the sin of mankind that has ruined us, his beloved sons and daughters, and it's the sin of mankind that has distanced us from him. And we are the apple of his eye. So naturally, he's going to be angry against sin, and he is angry against sin. And because the sin has separated us from him, when Jesus took on our sin, he also experienced the agony of separation from God. That's why scripture tells us that night in the garden, he sweat anxious drops of blood. And it's why on the cross, 
his deepest cry wasn't one about the physical pain he was experiencing. It was, Father, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever noticed that the words recorded by Jesus on the cross were actually nothing to do with the extreme physical pain he was enduring? They were the words that expressed his very heart. Father, don't leave me, and Father, forgive them. They don't know know what they're doing. And then, with his final breath, tetelestai, it is finished. That word, tetelestai, is a a Greek word, which means something something like this. It it has the sentiment of paid in full. It would appear on receipts in... uh, in the Roman world at that time. Tetelestai, it's paid in full. And at the same time, it has a connotation of it is and forever will be finished. It's done. That's what he did on the cross for us. Struck for us so that we didn't need to be. Paid in full. And you and I are paid in full forever. Third gospel contrast. Jesus offers us his very self, even though we choose Barabbas. Over the course of that night, Jesus was arrested and bound, and he was bumped from one kangaroo court to another. First, Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest, then up to Caiaphas, the high priest himself, and then up to the Roman governor, Pilate, the highest authority in the land. Pilate was the, the power and the voice of the Roman Empire. There are a few things that happen between uh, Jesus and Pilate that we should note and that should serve both as a diagnostic to our culture, to the times we live in, and to our hearts. Firstly, just observe how the Jewish leaders uh, deliver Jesus to Pilate's palace, to have a legal decree given to have him executed. And it says at the same time in verse 28, they themselves wouldn't enter into the palace because they didn't want to make themselves ritually unclean. They didn't want to make themselves unclean as they appealed for an innocent man's murder. There's a kind of spiritual blindness here which we're supposed to see as a challenge to ourselves. And it's exemplified in the dialogue between Pilate and Jesus as, as Pilate tries to ascertain if this Jesus really is a king or not and whether he's broken any laws. And so... He asks, well, are you a king? And Jesus says, well, is that your idea? And Pilate says, I'm not a Jew. I don't know. But your own people say this, so they've handed you over to me to have you dealt with. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. In fact, I came into this world to establish truth, to establish the reason and the basis and the purpose and the direction for humanity and all of it is to find life in me in relationship with my Father. Everyone who stands with me stands with truth, stands for truth. It's like he's appealing to Pilate's soul in this moment. Listen to me. Listen to me, Pilate. I am the truth. Only I am the truth. If you don't recognize that I am the truth, if you don't see the unchecked condition of the human heart, just look around you, Pilate. The religious leaders are trying to stay, un- trying to stay clean as they simultaneously call for my murder. This is what you're like. This is what the human heart is like. It's full of contradictions. And it wants to believe whatever it thinks will satisfy and save, even when that leads to violence and death. But I tell you, 
I have come as the truth, to proclaim truth. And to everyone who stands on the side of truth, you're with me. There is no other truth. There is no other way. This sinful, self-protecting, self-glorifying disease is all around you. You need saving. You need a savior. That's why I've come. And that's why I'm prepared to go through all of this, even if it means my humiliation and my death. Just like you're saying, are you listening, Pilate? Or maybe this morning, are you listening, Gateway? Are you aware of the clamor inside yourself? Do you feel the draw to satisfy and save yourself, to go your own way, to follow after what you think will do you good? There's only one place to find that. There's only, there's only one truth. It's Jesus. That's why he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way. There is no shortcut. Nothing else will satisfy and nothing else will save you. But Jesus, nothing that this world cooks up, no riches, no status, no love ultimately that you attain, the human heart is a hungry beast. It devours what it desires and then it wants the next thing. And that's because it's designed to search and find something to satisfy it. Or rather, to find someone to satisfy it. And that is the basis for all of our strivings. Are you striving? Are you hungry and thirsty? Are you weary? Are you broken? Are you lost? Whatever you're looking for, however you're spending yourself, Friends, I promise you, you will not find it outside of Jesus. You simply won't. Your heart was made for him. You are looking for truth. Our whole world is looking for truth. That's why we keep on ramping up increasingly obscure and crazy versions of what we think truth is and what we think it should be in our culture. And in response to this, Pilate asks Jesus a question, and it's a question, again, that is one of the deepest questions of the human heart, and it's a fundamental question of our age. What is truth? That's what he says. What is truth? We're all asking it. The truth is Jesus. He offers himself to us. He offered himself up to death in this story, and he offers himself up to us today. He calls you to stand on the side of truth with him, to learn from him, to live in relationship with him, and to find rest for your souls because he tells us in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle and humble in heart, so you can come to me. I am safe. I am what you need. And so Pilate turns to the Jews. He leans over his balcony and he says, it is my custom at this time of year to release a prisoner. And I can see nothing that this Jesus has done wrong, so you can have him back. Or I can release another Jewish prisoner. He's a violent insurrectionist called Barabbas. Which one do you want? And they all cry out, give us Barabbas. We'll take violence. We'll take force. We'll take the one we think will fight and win our battles. We'll take the one who looks and smells like us and feels like us. Give us Barabbas. And then they say, as for Jesus, crucify him. Crucify him. In Matthew 27, 
In Matthew 27, it records them as shouting, crucify him and let his blood be on us and our children. They are literally calling down a murderous curse on themselves, such as their opposition to God's gift of Jesus to them. This is what we so often do in the face of truth. No thank you, God. I'll just go it alone. It's a type of curse. It leads to death. We could have truth, but we choose lies. We could have life, but we choose death. Don't give us Jesus. Give us Barabbas. So crucify him and let his blood be on us and our children. Little did they know that this is exactly what would happen. And it was the greatest mercy that humanity has ever received. Because the following day, as he hung on the cross, his blood did flow. And his blood is on us and on our children. And forever will be. Because it's that blood spilled for us in his perfect atoning sacrifice that washes over us and cleanses us from our sin. It's his blood gateway that sets us free, that makes us right with God, that beckons us close, that removes the curse of sin and death hanging over us because he did it all. His blood is on us and it's on our children. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. It's his blood. We sing that song here sometimes. I think we're singing it today. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What are those lyrics? What can wash away my sins? What can make me whole again? What can cleanse me from within? Nothing but the blood. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. His blood shed on the cross cleanses you of your sin. It removes you from judgment and condemnation and death. And it offers you new life. He offers you new life. You don't need to strain or strive or work to find peace and hope and righteousness and relationship with God because on the cross, tetelestai, it is finished. He did it all for you and it's done. Paid in full. It is finished and forever will be. There are two questions asked in the story. Jesus' questions to the soldiers who came to arrest him in the garden Who is it you want? That's a great question for us today. And Pilate's question to Jesus, what is truth? Who is is it you want? What is truth? Great questions. What are you looking for? And where are you looking for it? You don't need to search and strive for satisfaction and peace. You don't have to choose Barabbas. Choose Jesus. He is what you want, and he is the truth, and he is what you need. He is the way and the truth and the life. Choose Jesus. Do it today. Do it today. And do it again if you've done it before and you're drifting or you need to rediscover peace and hope and satisfaction and salvation. Choose Jesus. Come to him today. In uh, just a moment, we're going we're gonna to sing and we're going to take communion again. Matthew will lead us in that. As we do that, we've got 25 minutes or so. I just really want to um, encourage you to do that self-diagnostic. Who is it you want? How are you spending yourself? Where are you looking for it? And if it is in any way not Jesus, then maybe today some repentance needs to happen, some reorienting of the heart needs to happen. Maybe you just need to say, Lord, I'm so sorry, I have spent myself on that which does not satisfy. I want to spend myself on you. I want to give myself to you. 
I want to reorient my heart again to you and to your purposes in my life. Would you help me? Holy Spirit, I can't do it myself. Would you come and empower me to do that? Let's pray.